Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Praise God for the time of communion. What a wise God we serve to give us such a sacrament as that. Um, Let me ask the Lord's blessing as we turn to his word very quickly. Father, as we turn now to the teachings of the apostles, and we look at this great book of Philippians, and we begin to delve into it, I just ask your blessing on our understanding tonight, and and may we we comprehend even a part of it that we might ordinarily just kind of breeze over, that we can see the value of the way that you have communicated with us. We will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to start in the book of Philippians tonight. We are going to limit our study to just the first two verses. I will explain, hopefully, why we're doing this in a moment. But let's read those verses. Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. Hear now God's word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May his name ever be praised. And we ask God's blessing upon this reading of his words. Well, as I said, we're going to start into looking at the book of Philippians, but if you were here just about a month ago, the last time we had an even fall, what we actually did is we looked at the history behind this, how Paul got to the place where he is to write this letter. We talked about his second missionary voyage, started about 50 or so AD, ran to about 53. Um, and first it was Paul and Barnabas that set out, then they had a kind of a, 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 a disagreement about John Mark, so uh, Barnabas goes to Crete with John Mark, Paul heads north with Silas. Um, they stop at Lystra and they pick up a young man, probably converted on the first of those voyages, Timothy, and then they tried to go up into Bithynia, the Holy Spirit impeded them, they ended up in Troas, and that's where they picked up Dr. Luke. And while they're in Troas, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia asking him to come and help them. So sure enough, they took off. They went to Macedonia. They ended up in Philippi. And he did what he does. He began to look for people to share the gospel with. And, and he found a group of women by the river, and they were having a prayer meeting. They were, they were God-fearers. The first convert seemed to be a woman named Lydia, who was a, 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 probably a very successful businesswoman who uh, dealt with purple uh, fabrics coming out of Thyatra. And she had a nice house, apparently, so she asked Paul and the others to come and stay with her, and that sort of became their headquarters. And we're not told how they began to add to the church or how it grew, but we are told that there was a a woman, a a young girl, seemed to be possessed by a demon, a fortune teller, that her owners were making money from her, and she began to follow Paul around. Paul got sick of her and cast the demon out, and boy, there goes her ability to tell the future. Uh, Well, the owners got a little upset, and they ended up in prison, Paul and Silas. And as Brother Byron said earlier, in the middle of the night, that's when 
the angel let them all loose. And long story short, that's how they met the Philippian jailer. And that is when he was converted and then they went home and the entire family was converted and all of everybody was baptized. And so all of a sudden, we have two families that we know are part of the church at Philippi. We read this as they are let out of jail, 16th uh, chapter of, uh, of, uh, of Acts. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So they saw the brethren. That means there's a church now that is meeting at Lydia's house. And Paul leaves and continues on his missionary voyage. Now he'll return to Philippi twice on his third missionary voyage But that was all about 10 years earlier than the time that this letter is being written. Paul is now a prisoner in Rome under house arrest. And while he is there, a man named Epaphrodites comes from Philippi to minister to Paul, uh, sent as a leader of that church. And he brought with him news about the church at Philippi, and that sort of was the stimulus for Paul to write this letter. So he's in prison in Rome under house arrest, and he's going to write this letter to the Philippians. He actually is going to send it back with Epaphrodites because Epaphrodites got sick and almost died while he was in Rome with Paul. And, and, and so he's the one who delivers it back to the Philippians. Now, we're going to take a look, as I said, at just the very beginning of it. You know, those of us who have lived a little longer than others, we, we, we kind of notice that some of the things that were accepted and seemed to be just everyday normal things, we've watched them almost deteriorate before our eyes. And one of those things has been the writing of letters, uh, to sit down and actually write a letter. Um, we talk in sound bites, you know, we have emails, and that's as close as we get to a letter, um, but we still tweet. Well, we don't tweet anymore, do we? They're X's, uh, right? They, they change the name. But nonetheless, um, we, we talk in sound bites, and, and, and we've lost an art. And, and so we've lost it to the point that we don't even recognize anymore that there was an art to letter writing. Now, the reason that this is important is because in any art, whether it's painting, whether it's literature, there are forms that are followed. I mean, people study how to write a good novel or, or how to paint a good picture or colors and things like that. And so there are forms that will take a normal everyday picture and make it a great painting or, or an everyday story and make it a great one. Well, the same thing is true about letters. There, 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 were, there were magnificent letters that were being written, and, and they truly were beyond skill. They, they were an art. Now, the Holy Spirit has decided that the way that he will communicate most of the doctrine of the New Testament will be through the genre of letters. And so, therefore, when we turn to a letter like this, I think it behooves us to spend just a wee bit of time 
talking about the form of that letter. And I know as soon as I say that, everybody's going to go to sleep. You think, you're going to think about your 10th grade literature class, and you had to learn all those forms of poems and prose, and it was so boring that you're not going to listen to anything I say. Please stay with me. We're not going to get technical at all. This is the, the even fall. We're, we're, we're not going to go in depth into this. But I do think that if we recognize the form, we are going to be able to enjoy um, a, a deeper understanding of what Paul is saying. Now, as I go into this, I want you to ask yourself a question here tonight as a reader of this letter. What does it mean or what can it mean when an apostle of Jesus Christ tells his readers, pronounces a blessing upon his readers like grace to you and peace in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ? And you're one of those readers. What does that mean to you when an apostle of Jesus Christ says that to you? Because that's exactly what we're going to read here in this tonight. So let's take a look at just these first two verses, just the greeting to the letter. Several things I want you to notice. Look at that first verse. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Well, the first thing that we notice about a well-formed letter in these days is that the signature goes right up front. We put our signature at the end of our letters. Well, not, that's not the way they did it then. A well-formed letter always identified the writer of the letter right up front. And so that's exactly what Paul's doing. Now, there's a couple of things we want to notice that are quite interesting here. First of all, notice that Paul uses his Greco-Roman name, Paul, rather than his Hebrew name, Saul, which makes perfect sense because, after all, Philippi was probably predominantly Gentile. So it's the Greco-Roman world that he, he is doing. But I also want you to notice something that is somewhat unusual. Notice how he starts. Now, this is usually the author of the letter. He says, Paul and Timothy... Okay, now, if you just read that as a normal letter, what that would actually mean was Paul and Timothy were the authors of this letter. And yet, we know when we get into the letter, we'll find this out without question. Paul speaks in the first person singular all the way through it, I and me, and he refers to Timothy in the third person, him. And so we know that Paul is the author. But why is he including Timothy in such a way that it almost sounds like Timothy was an author? I mean, these are the little things you need to pick up. Now, it's not that Paul did not include Timothy in, in other uh, um, uh, letters. But almost always, it was identifying himself as the author, and then Timothy is here with me. In other words, take a look at Colossians, the way that you don't have to turn there. But Colossians opens this way, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Okay, obviously Paul identifies himself as the author and Timothy is there with him as a brother. But he doesn't do that here. Why is that? Well, I'm going to answer that in a question because the second question, I mean, I answer it in a moment because the second question I have kind of flows into that. Do you notice anything missing here? Those of you who've read extensively Paul's letters, do you notice anything that is not in this opening? A word. Apostle. Yes. 
Nine out of 13 times, Paul identifies himself as an apostle. The Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I could read all of those to you. Nine out of 13 times, he makes it clear that he's an apostle. In the book of Philippians, the word is not mentioned. Not only is it not in the greeting, it's not in the book. Okay? So why does Paul leave that out? It's pretty obvious he leaves it out. Why would Paul leave such an important thing as I am an apostle? And the only reason I'm telling you this is that Paul is setting the tone of this letter. It has been said that Philippians is a love letter to this congregation. Paul loves this congregation. And the reason I think that he doesn't mention Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is because these people know it. Okay? Now, in other In other letters, the letters to the Galatians, the letters to the Corinthians, Paul is defending his apostleship. It has been questioned. That's not the tone of this letter. There's no one in Philippi that he has to tell that he's an apostle. So it goes without saying. And brothers and sisters, it brings up, I think, a very important principle of good leadership. Good leadership does not feel the necessity to remind you every day that they're your leader unless you need it, okay? If you need to be reminded that, hey, guess what? I'm the apostle and and you're not, (laughs) okay? Uh, uh, He'll more than likely do that. He does it in other books, but not here because he doesn't need to. They're all on the same page. They know he's the apostle and they love him as such. And so Paul is perfectly comfortable in saying I don't need to tell you I'm an apostle because you already know it. Same thing with Timothy. Why would he include Timothy as if he were an author when we know he's not? And the reason is that that congregation loved Timothy too. Timothy was there at the beginning. He was there at the establishment of the church. He's visited Philippi on multiple occasions since then. And Timothy was comfortable in his skin. He was comfortable knowing that Paul is the apostle. And it was so prevalent, it was so evident that everyone recognized that Paul doesn't need to say, Paul the apostle of Jesus Christ and Timothy our brother. No, he just says Paul and Timothy because there's a complete understanding that everyone knew that Paul's the apostle and Timothy's his protege. So basically what this does is it sets the tone for the kind of letter that this is going to be. So, that's the signature, Paul and Timothy. Now, after the signature in a a formal letter, there would be an identification where the author would identify themselves in some way. And this is where it still gets very interesting. Notice, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. This also is unique. Now, it's not that Paul did not identify himself as a servant in other letters. He does so in Rome, in the Romans, and also in Titus. But once again, it is Paul a servant of Jesus Christ and an apostle. Okay, I'm a servant, but I'm also an apostle. Here, he doesn't feel the need to say, I'm an apostle. It's just servant. Now, the word that is used is important. Doulos in the Greek. Most of you are familiar with that. Actually, it's a douloi here because it's in the plural because he says, Paul and Timothy, servants. Now, doulos is a word that literally translated means slave. 
Okay, that's what the word means. It, it, it's, it's not, it's translated servant here, but the word actually means slave. And Paul would be perfectly comfortable with that. He'd be perfectly comfortable with being called a slave of Jesus Christ. The reason is that a slave is owned. A slave is not self-determining. They are owned by somebody else. As reprehensible as that sounds to us, as far if the owner is Jesus Christ, it's okay. In fact, Paul made that very clear to the Corinthians. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. That's the sixth chapter, seventh chapter. He says the same thing. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So the first thing that Paul would be very happy about, called a slave of Jesus Christ, is that he is owned by Jesus. The second thing is that a slave is totally dependent upon their master. They, they, they have no ability to, get, to earn their food or, or to have clothes or a place to live. And so there's total dependence, and that's what Paul teaches, dependence on Jesus Christ. The third thing about a slave is they have no self-determination. That the, a slave cannot decide what is going to happen with the rest of his life. It's in the hands of the master. And once again, Paul is very, very, very comfortable with that, that his future is in the hands of his Lord. So I think slave would fit just nicely. But in our culture, the word slave carries an awful lot of reprehensible baggage with it. Uh, it, it, It means something more than it actually did then. So that's the reason that it is translated in modern times as servant. But I wish that instead of servant, they had least used the word bondservant. Because that is more representative of what the word means when it is transferred as a servant. Now, a bondservant was a slave that, for whatever reason, was given their freedom and didn't want it. And so chose, through their own volition, to remain in the service of their master. Now, sometimes this was kind of an obvious move. You know, sometimes a slave lived a pretty cushy life. I mean, just think about Joseph in Egypt, right? Basically, he's a slave, and he's the number two man in, in, in all of Egypt, um, so if you're the head of a household of, uh, of a, a very wealthy master, then your life as a slave is better than it could be anywhere else. So when your master says, hey, you've earned your freedom, you can take off, you say, I don't think so. It's, it's a cold, dark world out there, and I think I'm comfortable just where I am. So they would have the all put through the earlobe. And they would, they would become a bond servant. And Paul, through his own volition, he had nothing to do with his own salvation. That was purely by the grace of God. But yet he has chosen with everything in his power to follow Jesus. And so, therefore, he's a willing slave, a willing bond servant of Christ. And don't get the wrong idea about slavery in those days. I had a woman, I was teaching a seminar one time. And she was arguing with me over uh, uh, something to do with uh, Romans 13 and the, the, the being under the authority that God has put us under. And she was, uh, she was upset about slavery, and she said that slavery in the United States was different than slavery in the Bible. It was a different kind of slavery. 
And I didn't answer her this way, but I thought, well, go tell the children of Israel that <laughs> who spent 400 years in bitter bondage, you know, that that wasn't real slavery. There, there was cushy slavery, but there was also really brutal slavery. To, to end up as a slave on a galley ship, your life expectancy was probably less than a year. Um, they literally used you until you died, and they threw you overboard. So it, it, there, there was different levels of slavery at that time. But Paul identifies himself and Timothy as servants. And once again, I think he's comfortable. He doesn't have to say an apostle. They know he's an apostle. And the fact that the congregation in Philippi knew who Paul was and accepted him as such, accepted his leadership, meant that he was free to be their servant. He was free to be their slave rather than to have to remind them that he was an apostle. Well, he um, also identifies himself not only as a servant, but a servant of Jesus Christ. That is the most important part of this idea of being a slave. But I want you to notice what Paul does here. Notice that he uses three times in this short greeting, he uses the name of Christ. He is a servant of Christ Jesus. He's writing this to the saints in Christ Jesus. And he's saying grace to you in peace from Christ Jesus. So what Paul is doing is uh, right off the bat, he's taking the focus off himself. And he's putting it where it belongs on Christ. And he wants his readers to know something. He wants his readers to know that this is not just Saul of Tarsus writing them a letter. This comes straight from the mind of God. This is Jesus speaking to them through the mind and the pen of Paul. And I asked you earlier, what does it mean when an apostle of Jesus Christ tells the readers of his epistle, grace to you and peace through God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what he's saying. He's saying that I didn't, I'm not the one, I know you're not in Philippi, New Hope Community Church. But I'm writing you a letter, and I want you to know it's not just me writing it, and it's not just me giving you, pronouncing this blessing on you. This comes straight from our Lord Jesus Christ. So blessed are you if you are delving into this letter. Well, the, the form goes on. You start out with a signature, and then you have an identification, and then you want to address the letter. This all goes up front. We address it up front. We sign it at the bottom. All this goes up front. So the rest of that first verse is the address. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. It's kind of interesting at the end of that address. Let's go to the end of the sentence. We'll work our way back. He specifically, now we want to remember he addresses this to all the saints at Philippi. That's important. But he specifically names the overseers and deacons. He calls out the two ecclesiastical offices of the New Testament church. Now, an overseer, the underlying word there is episcopus, which means bishop, which is translated bishop. That's where episcopal comes from. It's a bishop-oriented form of, of government. The other word is presbytos, which is an elder, which we are elder-driven form of government. 
But that distinction came years later. The, the distinction in the New Testament between bishop and elder, they're almost synonymous. There's probably a nuance of difference between the two, but they're virtually synonymous. So basically what Paul is doing is he's identifying the two offices of the church, elder and deacon. Now, the elders, of course, focus on the spiritual needs of the congregation, and the deacons focus on the physical needs of the congregation. So why do you think Paul, after he's already said to all the saints at Philippi, would single out the elders and the deacons as, as, as a separate entity almost that, okay, I'm writing to everybody, but hey, you guys need to be paying special attention to this. And, and I think there's two reasons that come to mind. One, Paul has, we've already been talking about about leadership and authority here. And, and, and for whatever reason, I think Paul wants to underscore the leadership and authority of the church at Philippi. He wants to remind them that God is the one who calls officers of the church, calls elders, calls deacons, and, and that they, as Hebrews says, these are your spiritual shepherds, and they will one day give an account for your spiritual well-being. So listen to them and obey them. So I think he's establishing that authority, but I think he also, on the other hand, is, is holding them accountable. I'm writing a letter here, and there's going to be an awful lot of information that's going to be in that letter. We're going to jump around from subject to subject, and I want you, two groups of people, to be held accountable that you make sure that these are shared, implemented, understood by the congregation. But backing up to the beginning, he, 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 he writes this to all the saints. Mark that all. It's not just the leaders. It's not just the, the, the upper echelon. This is written to all the saints. Now, unfortunately, that word saints is another one of those words that has been vastly changed over the years. It was probably a couple of hundred years and into the, the history of the church and the word saint began to be used of super Christians, if you will. Really good Christians. The word saint simply means sanctified believer. We're all saints. And, and I say that sometimes and I can see eyebrows go up and they think, what do you mean calling us saints? We're not saints. That's Roman Catholicism, you know. But that's a corruption of the words. Uh, that came along centuries later where um, a certain group of people were canonized by the Pope and then venerated, meaning they were actually worshipped. And usually they were people that were supposedly so good, such super Christians, that they had more merit than they needed to get into heaven and bypass purgatory, and so their extra merit goes where? Treasury of merit. And who has the keys to the treasury of merit? The Pope does, and he gets to pass it out however he wants to. So that's a corruption of the word, and, and, and that's not at all what Paul means. He's writing this to the sanctified solid, Christ-following, picking up my cross and denying myself every day. This is the, the, the basic congregation of sanctified believers. So that's the one he writes it to. And then notice that it's not just saints. It's all the saints in Christ Jesus. That's one of Paul's favorite concepts, to be in Christ. And these are the believers who are, as we learned this morning, they are with Christ. They're on the same page. They are marching with him in this cosmic initiative that we're talking about. So that's, that's what Paul is writing this letter to. All the saints, and in particular, you officers, need to be paying attention 
to what I'm going to say. Okay, so that's sort of the, the signature. It's the identification and then the address. And then in a formal letter, what you would always find is some kind of a greeting. Now, usually this greeting would take the form of, of, of a, uh, a secular greeting. You know, uh, may fortune fall upon you, or it, it could even be may the gods look uh, uh, favorably upon you. Some kind of a greeting and a pronouncement of a blessing. But Paul took that greeting, that secular greeting of a formal Greco-Roman letter, and he adapted it to his own purposes. Ten out of 13 letters. He starts with the pronouncement of a blessing, grace to you, and peace. And he, he refers to it in various ways. But those, that's the basic thing that he says every time, almost every time, 10 out of 13 of his letters start the same way, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take those two separately. What does he mean when he says grace to you? Well, if there's any group of people who should thrill when we hear that word, it's us, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. We are saved by the grace of God. We are here because of the grace of God. So we should just light up when we hear the word grace to you. But keep in mind, Paul is not writing this letter to unbelievers. He's writing the letter to a mature group of believers in Philippi. So the grace that he is stating is not saving grace, but rather sanctifying grace. It's a horrible misconception in the church sometimes that once we're saved, that's it. That's, that's all the grace we need. Now, you need grace every day. You need grace every hour. You, you, you are sanctified by the grace of God. And here's what Paul is saying. Grace to you. Okay, what does it mean to you when an apostle of Jesus Christ says grace to you? He says, may God pour his rich grace upon you. May he inundate you with his grace. May you live in the presence of his grace. Because that's what we do in the means of grace when we grow in Christ. We, we are experiencing the grace of God. And Paul is, is pronouncing that blessing upon, of course, Philippi, but all of the people who would read his letter. Grace to you and peace. Now, the word he uses is the Greek word for peace, okay? But it's not the Greek concept of peace. It's the Hebrew concept of peace. We talked about this many times. Peace in a Hebrew sense is not the absence of conflict or the absence of war. In fact, it might be peace right in the middle of conflict and in the middle of war. Peace is shalom, the, the Hebrew concept of peace with God, some kind of reconciliation with God. Well, the only way that we ever receive peace is through grace, through the grace of Christ. And I think what Paul is saying here is may God's grace settle upon you in your sanctification because the more grace the more sanctification, the more the means of grace, the more peace. The closer you are with Jesus, the more peace that you will experience as a result of that relationship. So grace to you, he says, and peace, and the source of peace from God our Father and 
the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says Lord Jesus Christ, there's another word that's important there. Lord Kurios is the Greek word. And that dynamic between Kurios and Doulos is one of the most profound, fundamental dynamics that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. We are the douloi. We are the slaves. We are the servants. He is the Lord. He is our master. And that's the relationship that Paul is stating and laying it out to start this letter. So what a fantastic way to start a letter. How wonderful it is to set the tone of this letter from the very beginning. I, your beloved Apostle Paul, I'm not even going to tell you I'm an apostle. I'm just simply going to tell you I am your servant. Timothy is with me, and we are going to write a letter, a love letter about your church and what Epaphroditus has told us about that church. And by the way, grace to you. May God's grace be upon you. What does it mean when the apostle of Jesus Christ says grace to you in peace in a letter to those who read the letter? It might, be, it might as well be Jesus standing right here and talking to you from his word because that's exactly what we have is the word of God. Grace to you and peace with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That sets the tone for the rest of Philippians. We'll start that next time. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so blessed. You know, how many times do we read these letters in the New Testament? We just skip right through the opening and, you know, just kind of, let's get to the meat and potatoes. We don't realize that when you take all of these letters that you recognize that there's an art to this. It's not done of, you know, haphazardly or randomly. That, that these are master letter writers. And, that, and they have information for us in every word that they say so that we can know you better. And so, Lord, I pray that we will understand that there is grace to be given and it is all because of you and from you and through you and by you. And that through that grace we were saved, and it is through that grace that we are sanctified. And as we are sanctified and grow closer to you, so deepens our peace. And dear Lord, may that be the way we leave this evening. May we live in peace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.